the Shakespeare scholar Harold Bloom, says, Nothing by Shakespeare before A Midsummer Night's Dream is its equal, and in some respects, nothing by him afterward surpasses it. It is his first undoubted masterwork without flaw, and one of his dozen or so plays of overwhelming originality and power. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Our friend Maxine Davidowitz recently told me that she had a very interesting person to introduce me to. Maxine introduced me to Hank Niemark, telling me that Hank was getting ready to direct the summer 2022 Woodstock Shakespeare Festival production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. After talking with Hank for just a short time, I asked if he would like to talk about the play on the podcast, and he agreed. At Hank's suggestion, we also have with us today David Aston Reese, the producing artistic director of the Bird on a Cliff Theater Company. David has acted, directed, and produced works for Bird on a Cliff Theater Company's Woodstock Shakespeare Festival and the Woodstock Playhouse. Welcome to the podcast, Hank and David. Well, good to be here. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. In his book on Shakespeare's plays, The Invention of the Human, former Sterling Professor of Humanities at Yale University, the Shakespeare scholar Harold Bloom, says, Nothing by Shakespeare before A Midsummer Night's Dream is its equal, and in some respects, nothing by him afterward surpasses it. It is his first undoubted masterwork without flaw, and one of his dozen or so plays of overwhelming originality and power. A Midsummer Night's Dream is one of Shakespeare's comedies and is thought of, by some, as one of Shakespeare's most sexual plays, but also as one of the most suitable for children, an unlikely combination. This is a play that includes kings and queens, marriages, fairies, and dreams, all of which sounds perfect for children. However, as described by Professor Emma Smith, professor of Shakespeare studies at Oxford University in England, A Midsummer Night's Dream is a play focused on sexual desire. By contrast, Professor Bloom refers to the play as a humble and wise drama, and he rejects what he refers to as the prevailing notion that sexual violence and bestiality are at the center of the play. Perhaps the almost slapstick nature of the comedy is its saving grace for younger audiences. We may get to discuss more about all of that in a moment, but first, by my count, There are seven or eight main characters, and our guest will correct me on A, everything, and B, pronunciations, I'm sure. Theseus, Duke of Athens, and Hippolyta, Queen of the Amazons, who are about to get married. Not quite romantically, Theseus defeated the Amazons, a society ruled by women, and took their queen, Hippolyta, as his wife. Remember, of course, that the play was written in the mid-1590s. Then there's Hermia and Lysander, who are in love with each other. Aegis, father to Hermia, who forbids her to marry Lysander and prefers that Hermia marry Demetrius. If she refuses, she'll have to face the law of Athens, that is, either death or consignment to a nunnery. We have Demetrius himself, who undoubtedly agrees with Aegis, as he is in love with Hermia. And then we have Helena, who is in love with Demetrius, but, as far as I could tell, is not subject, the subject of anyone's affection at the outset, putting aside the affair that Lysander alleges Helena has had with Demetrius. 
We then also have Philostrate, master of the revels to Theseus, which is to say he's the event planner for the Duke, his manager of mirth. A Midsummer Night's Dream also includes a play within a play. So we have six fabulously named actors who are referred to as the Mechanicals. These are English rustic artisans who are said to come out of Shakespeare's own countryside where he grew up. Quince, who by profession is a carpenter, Snug, who's a joiner, Bottom, the favorite among his fellow mechanicals, is a weaver. Bottom, dressed as a donkey, may have had an affair of sorts with the fairy queen Titania, within the main play. Flute, who's a bellows mender, Snout, who's a tinker, and Starveling, who's a tailor. And then, of course, we have the fairies, Oberon and Titania, king and queen of the fairies, who are in a dispute with each other over the custody of a young Indian boy, Puck, or Robin Goodfellow, a jester and practical joker, and a key troublemaker in the story, Peas Blossom, Cobweb, Moth, and Mustard Seed. Great names. We also have several clowns to entertain us. I look forward to meeting all of these characters at the production in Woodstock that opens on July 29. Hank, give us some more flavor about the play, the characters, their relationships, or the dreams and the meaning of it all. And and David, I'm going to also want you to comment on all of that, but also as director of the play, to discuss the choices you make when producing the play, particularly for a Woodstock audience. Let's get something straight. David, although is producer, uh, Bird on a Cliff Theater, is also the major director uh, of the play. So, you know, it's under his baton that uh, the play is actually staged. I'm there to basically support him and... uh, Excellent. So I just wanted to get that straight. You're you're giving David the the credit and the responsibility. There there you go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me say, uh, you know, at the outset that uh, your description of the play uh, makes it sound like some play I'd really like to see. (laughs) It sounds fascinating. (laughs) It really does. Well, the play, you know, deals in, in, well, it's Shakespeare. You can come at it from a million different directions. And all of it is valid. Uh, anything you, you, you see in it, anything it says to you is, is certainly valid. And, you know, Shakespeare, you know, they, as you said, this is his masterwork. That could be. I, uh, you know, I, I love all his plays, even the lesser known ones. But uh, it certainly is uh, what we think of as an unbreakable play. That's how good it is. I mean, I've seen junior high school kids put on a performance. Kids have never done anything before, and it's still uh, beyond entertaining. That's so interesting when you say, I was going to ask what you mean by unbreakable. So it can be put on at every level. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it can be put on at any level because the, the theme, the way the story goes, the story seems like it's incredibly complex. And yet... When you watch it unfold and you read it and you see it, it's not complex at all. It's simple, and so simple in its um, in in the, the workings of what goes on. That's what makes it so funny and easy to comprehend. And even the language, the the uh, arcane and uh, archaic and uh, obtuse language with all its references. Even then, it's entirely accessible. And who doesn't like magic? It's so full of magic. And the immortals, that is Titania and, uh, and Oberon, Puck, 
the various fairies, as you said, mustard seed. Who you pr- you pronounce those names correctly? Mustard oh, seed, Northern Cockland. <laughs> the magic is, you know, even if it, it, as immune as, as inured as you can get to, you know, the magic of of life. We, we all enjoy some of it, especially out here in the uh, in the countryside in the woods. So that's uh, pretty much the the flavor, the texture of the play itself. Yeah, it's a, a great synopsis by Hank there. Um, it's kind of a side story. When I, I was doing summer stock in the 70s and they put on a uh, talent show, those that could sing, dance, magic, whatever, and they interspersed between acts the mechanical scenes, which I believe are four, and it ends with the play. And the audience ate it up. The mechanical scenes just from the Summer Nights. Show. Just the mechanical scenes interspersed among these singers and dancers and what, and the whole show ended with the play within the play. And uh, it just shows how brilliant that is. Uh, and of all, I, I can say this, of uh, putting together this production and uh, making a rehearsal schedule that's uh, <laughs> a, good for everybody because everybody has day jobs and vacations, particularly in the summer and whatnot. This play can be broken down into sections where the lovers can be rehearsed separately from the mechanics. Awesome. So interesting. The fairies, Oberon and Puck. The other thing in your character descriptions, uh, we've double cast Theseus and Apolita with uh, Oberon and Titania. And Puck plays Philistrate. So the trio is uh, the royals and also the fairies. And is that done? I, I think I've read that Something like that is done frequently. It's it's the almost standard country. practice yeah. because for a producer you don't have to hire <laughs> more actors. Right, you right. Know. It's hard enough to get thirteen. Yeah, and they're never 16. on stage together. Right. The, the 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 one part that's interesting is the bottom speech where it comes in. Not this. This is after uh, Puck is taken off. The ass's head. Right. If I may say, you said that he wears, he's dressed as a, a, an ass. He's actually is a human who actually is transformed. Is transformed. His head is the head of a donkey. Of an ass. Of a donkey. And translated in in the uh, I refer to the Riverside editions because yeah. that was recommended me years ago. So I've kind of held that book as far as. Uh, you know, all the plays have to be edited and everybody has a different approach. But the Riverside uh, has uh, Oberon and Titania exit and Theseus and Hippolyta enter again. <laughs> Immediately. Immediately. <laughs> so that, I'm thinking, well, I guess, you, I mean, if you did it that way, you'd have to have a different set of actors, which I'm sure is done a lot too. Uh, but all you have to do is move... The bottom speech, which is Bottom's dream, uh, that's Hank's thing. <laughs> I've given him. He said, let, "Let me direct Bottom's dream." I said, "Okay, okay." If you move it to a different place, it yep. gives uh, the actors playing the fairies and the, the royal time to change costumes and come back that, in. That, that's good. Yeah. That's good. So it's, it's a, a simple fix. Yeah. It's a simple yeah, fix. Yeah. It's a, you don't even you know as as well as you might know the play. You don't even see that fix. It's seamless. It's like an editor, you know, moving a scene in a movie. And, you know, it works. 
and it may have been whoever edited the play right. may say, well, it makes more sense to have the, you know, the lovers leave first and then. Or the page got yeah. lost and they stuck it in, <laughs> uh, you know, the way they did it those days. So, oh, so Bottom, bottom Street. Street. Yeah. Well, Bottom has been transformed uh, through the uh, puckishness of Puck. I won't give away too much of the play for those who haven't <laughs> seen it, but who certainly should. Uh, and, and because of your podcast should read it as well. Yes. Uh, he's been transformed because Titania, as a little punishment, is given uh, some kind of a spell. I won't tell you how. And uh, the idea is that she's going to fall madly, wildly in love with the next live creature that she sees who happens to be Bottom, who's ha- who has been transformed, a man walking around with a donkey's head. And uh, he wakes up at some point, you know, and, uh, you know, all is transformed back, you know, and so forth. And he's once more fully human. And this is, as you said before, is a, is a rude mechanical. He's a tradesman. He's a weaver uh, who's probably never had a deep thought in his life. And yet he suddenly realizes after waking up after a couple of minutes, he says, oh, whoa, wait a minute. I had some kind of a crazy vision here. I've had, a, he calls it a rare vision, a dream. And he attempts to explain it. He's basically explaining it to himself, but you know, the fourth wall, he's explaining it to the audience. He, he can't, he can't, he tries, he can't. There's no way of doing it. But yet he suddenly has these thoughts that he's never thought you could possibly have and he launches into this is a, a, a characteristic of uh, bottom in that he he transposes um uh, senses you know uh, he he uh, he hears his his lover i hear a voice i hear a voice oh no no i, I see, see a, a voice. voice i see i see thisby's voice yeah. i hear thisby's face right. Right. you know that kind of, and at the end of the stream he does the same thing he he takes off on a biblical passage, which I could never remember what it is, but he says, the eye of man hath not, the ear of man hath not seen, the eye of man hath not heard, the, the, the tongue of man can not report, the, the, you know, the man cannot. Pretty heavy from bottom. Heavy from bottom. From bottom, he, yes. And then he has to say, well, this is bottom's dream because it hath no bottom. So that's the. So Shakespeare uh, that's, is. That's Shakespeare. Putting. Words in, in, into fools are That's always right. like Polonius and Hamlet. Right. Know. But he does it so perfectly because it's it's bottom, you know, mistaking, you know, yeah. uh, malapropisms, I guess you could say. or And that makes sense. And that makes sense. It, it will make sense when you see it. It really yeah. does. Yeah. Some have questioned whether the entire play is a dream. Uh, and, and, and whether Wizard... Whether, well, there's whether, an example where he has a character who, who wakes up uh, after experiencing this kind of out of body thing, or as you know, and and just in a total confusion, and uh, basically, he uh, doesn't quite go that far, saying like, "Well, am I awake now?" <laughs> uh, that that's taken up by the lovers. That's right. Who uh, whose scene follows this yeah. and, uh, when they uh, they are awakened by the duke and right. uh, his soon to be wife. And uh, Theseus and Hippolyta and the crowd leaves and the lovers are alone on stage. And they're like, 
What just happened? What just happened? What just happened? And they actually say, Demetrius says, oh, let's talk about this yes. as let's he walks share, away. Let's share more thoughts on this. And right. the end of the play, the epilogue of the play is uh, Puck comes out and apologizes for this, this piece of garbage play <laughs> that he basically says, you know, and you can hear Shakespeare saying, no one's going to believe this. <laughs> uh, this is the worst play I've ever written, you know, and then suddenly it's the, it's the thing. And he basically apologizes to the audience. He says, you have been sleeping here says to the audience, while these visions being as actors going on, while this appeared, you've been sleeping, so please forgive us. It's no more yielding but a dream. You can't you can't feel it, you can't touch it. It's just it home. smoke. So right. so it is is Puck saying to the audience, this is your dream? You've I'm certainly I'm certainly uh, in an apologetic way. Yeah. He says, I'm sorry that you're asleep (laughs) and they've been sleeping through the show. It's not our fault. (laughs) But they have been these incredible visions you've seen, you've presented. So let's put your hands together and give us your approval. Give us his way of saying, please applaud. He says, give me your hands if we be friends. And and how do you relate that to the title of the play? A Midsummer Night's Dream. I, I guess from the first time I ever heard that title, my first thing was, what the heck is midsummer? Right. What is midsummer? And, uh, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh in the summertime, you know, <laughs> you would go to the swimming pool. And I guess there'd be a point where once the days get certain length, they start shrinking up again. Right. So that's the so, end of June, third week of June. So it's like, uh, yeah. that's that must be it. You know, when the light starts to dim, I guess. Well, uh, I, I've, I've got to put in a plug for George Balanchine's choreography for Midsummer Night's Dream, the New York City Ballet. Uh, every summer, uh, uh, I guess it's been interrupted for the pandemic. Maybe it's coming back. But every summer up in Saratoga at uh, the uh, Performing Arts Center, they would do Midsummer Night's Dream and it would get dark. And Mendelssohn's music uh, of Midsummer Night's Dream and the fireflies would come out. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And you'd be I hope they're going to do that in Woodstock. <laughs> well, if if we had the original play, which is how long? Four hours long, three uh, and a half, three something. If we yes. did that, we would we we would see the sun go down, and we probably will towards the end of the season. We'll start seeing yeah, it, yeah, it'll start to get dark. So you know, we may have that. But at any rate, the the uh, the idea of that being midsummer and the twinkling stars in the sky and the fireflies and the fairies floating through space. And there, were, there was also something. Like lazy about it. Yeah. So just lazy. Yeah. Yeah. These are the the dog days. Yeah. Yeah. The dog days, which I think refers to the kind of the dog constellation, the uh, Sirius. Is that right? Dog sun. Yeah. That's what that's what the dog days are. But don't get me started because these this is the kind of information that makes me so much so so fascinating on a date. <laughs> this <is> the- <laughs> well, we, I don't know. We're going to get into that, but yeah. uh, another uh, another podcast. So, so in the I, I mentioned um, uh, Professor Smith of Oxford uh, in her uh, lecture about a Midsummer Night's Dream, which was really wonderful. I think it was in uh, 2012. She mentions an English school teacher who had taken his class of 11 year olds to a production uh, of a Midsummer Night's Dream and. Let, the, this teacher led them out of the theater after witnessing, uh, the, as, as she described it, the cavorting of Bottom and Titania, uh, finding that the two of them writhing on a bed was far more sexually explicit than had been expected. 
and uh, it said that the 11 year olds were all embarrassed and, and the teacher commented and, and uh, Professor Smith loved this comment and I do as well that the production had driven a coach and carriage through our school's religious and sex education policies. I, I'm sure directors make decisions about how to present and I and, see Queen Mab hath been with you. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, this is the uh, third time we've done the production. We do like the major plays. We wait 10 years to bring them back. This is, we should say, this is Bird on a Cliff. Yes. Uh, Bird on a Cliff's company doing the Shakespeare Festival. Right. Did we mention that? Uh, Bird on a Cliff's Woodstock Shakespeare Woodstock Festival. Shakespeare Festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's, that's the full and name. They, and they've been going for how many years? 27. And it used to be the productions were right up the road here on Birdcliff. Yes, we started in that theater in 91 with a production of, well, Alice in Wonderland. Hank was, I was in the there. Mad, not the Mad Hatter. You were the... Uh, I was Lewis Carroll. I was the uh, the Mad Duchess. I was Humpty Dumpty. I was the March Hare. March Hare. That's, <laughs> uh, so I don't know Hank well, but none of that surprises me. Yeah, that's the reason we... Uh, cast him in the Wait, roles. They, 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 the reason they put up with me. The, the first production uh, that we did uh, was directed by Richard Edelman. You know Richard, don't you? And uh, he had the donkey's head made, which actually we still have, and he insisted on an addition. I, I don't know if, uh, in other words... An appendage an ap- of uh, sorts. To show well, the... And, and, and uh, so, Professor Smith, who, and so I wish I could do her English <laughs> accent, refers to being hung like a donkey. Exactly. Hung yeah. like a donkey. Yes. There you go. So, Is it? so he needed a well-hung donkey. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it, it just kind of hang, hangs below the, the mask and flaps around, you know. But um, That happens sometimes. And, <laughs> and, you know, Titania says something like... Uh, I will run out and find you new nuts. You know, yes, that's right. Yes. And uh, there's a lot of kind of sexual yeah. innuendo, uh, yeah. but we don't really get into writhing yeah. or anything. We don't have any <laughs> like no writhing in Woodstock. No writhing. What, what little, interests me? Just gentle sleep. What, what was that line? Coach and carriage? Coach and carriage. Coach and carriage. Well, that's better than a Mack truck. Yeah, well, that's true. You know, being driven through there. Religious institution. So Professor Smith uh, says, the question of who marries who is not the point of the play. This is not a play about marriage. It begins and ends with marriage, but it uses the majority of the plot to explore tantalizing alternatives, Mm -hmm. threesomes, partner swapping, bestiality, sadomasochism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can't argue with that. It's there. (laughs) I mean, Lysander and Demetrius all go after Helena. That's right. And uh, much to her consternation and confusion of why yeah, she doesn't understand. The round, you know. And a nice little irony in there is that she loves, she was pursuing Demetrius. Right. And now all of a sudden, Demetrius is coming at, at her at the same time Lysander is coming at her. And they were both in love with, Hel- in, with Hermia. With Hermia. Right. So yeah. all she can. Th- the conclusion she comes to is that they're all putting this on. It's That's all right. a game yes. just to. Right, mess with her mind. Yeah. So and, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's Puck's game, no? It's it's Puck's. It starts with Puck's a, makes a mistake. Yeah. So <laughs> I, we can. I mean, everybody. <laughs> yeah, uh, everybody knows can, the play. Yeah, There's no spoilers uh, yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's a rhyming couplet. <laughs> yes, Come on. Yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Puck uh, gives the uh, 
he's instructed by Oberon because Oberon sees Demetrius and Helena, and he sees how Demetrius is treating Helena really badly. Yeah. And Oberon says, this isn't right. I'm going to make this guy fall in love with Helena. Go get me that special flower. And, you know, uh, Puck does. And he says, uh, you know, give it to the Athenian who has a th- Athenian garb. You shall know him by his Athenian garb, garb. I guess, yeah. And, uh, but there's two Athenians running in the, <laughs> in the woods. And, so it's uh, an honest, honest mistake. It's an honest oh, yeah. mistake. It's an honest yeah. mistake, definitely. Uh, but it starts the ball rolling. And, of course, Puck just loves it. He yeah. loves the confusion. Yeah. No apology from him there. Yeah. There's even some point where uh, when, when uh, it's discovered, when, when, when Oberon sees that Titania is in love with a, a, a guy with the head of a donkey, Oberon says, oh, this turns out even better than I thought it would. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yes. Puck is also called Robin Goodfellow. Do you have thoughts about the two names? I just have a little historical uh, stuff. It's it's basically, uh, he is often known by the nickname of Puck, but he's become Puck within this, and Shakespeare refers to him as Puck. There's also a Hobgoblin. Uh, those that call you Hob- Hobgoblin and Sweet Puck uh, is, uh, is his name. So throughout uh, mythology, there's always been this sprite, this knavish sprite, this one sprite who's, uh, you know, represents uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, rebelliousness. Uh, and uh, Playfulness. Playfulness. A rebellious playfulness, you know. Right. Nobody gets killed. Prankishness. Nobody gets killed. Right. Not like okay. Ariel. No, absolutely not. But uh, it, so, so the names are interchangeable. In fact, in the uh, prologue, he says... Uh, uh, Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. He refers to himself in both ways, Robin and Puck and so forth. Very interesting. So one more thing on um, Bottom and Titania, um, also from Professor Bloom. What we do have here is a gentle, mild, good-natured Bottom, who is rather more inclined to the company of the elves than to the madly infatuated Titania. Does that sound right? Yes, and... uh he, he, he is simple. He doesn't have too much complicated up there, except he thinks he's a great actor. Yes. I Bottom mean, that's, yes. that's yes. really his. Right. He's got, he's got, what is it called? Durning, Kerr Durning syndrome, Durning Kerr syndrome. This is, it's really a well-documented syndrome that people who are inept have an overblown sense of what they can do, where the really competent people are constantly second-guessing. Are humble. Did I do the yeah. right thing? Am I going to get yeah, yeah. fired? You know, it's the people who know how to do it. But Bottom, you Just know... Just jumps it, right in. He jumps in. He wants to play every role yeah. in yes, the play. Does. Let me yes, play does. the lion, too. Yes. And, and I, and, and, uh, I can... Yeah. In the lion, and he wants to play Thisbe at one right? He's, you know, whatever. Yes, every, almost every, every role, role that comes up. I can do that, too. And then he comes, he, he shouts out, you know, this doggerel, this, that... The shivering shocks some, and... Something rocks of yes, the flocks yes. and that. It's, uh, and, and Shakespeare, it's, it's beautiful. I, you know, I once did a show, I worked in television. Well, can I say something in regards yeah, sure. to that? It, it, it's like it takes a, a great singer... To sing badly. That's exactly what I'm and saying. And it takes a great writer to write badly. That's exactly what and I'm saying. And that's what Shakespeare does with the, the right. play within the play. Yeah. No, it's, that's good. It's yeah. hysterical. You yeah. cannot, you, 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 you can edit film badly. And you can write badly. I, I even think, and I even think that in his writing of the play within the play, I think he's getting 
giving digs to other oh, playwrights. Yes. Using probably language that they use. Oh, that's so interesting. And and making fun. He of gives them. digs to actors too, with with bottom. You know, he, the actors who can play anything, and uh, you yeah. know, you know. Yeah, he's he's lots, met those lots, before. Lots, <laughs> that, that's lots very good. Digs. That's, that's I did good. It. the the thing I was going to mention was I did a show with uh, uh, Itzhak Perlman one time, and he's lovely guy and full of jokes you know bad jokes but funny bad jokes and uh, he he picks up the violin and tunes it up before we roll tape and he's just tuning it you know and <laughs> and it's beautiful it's like the most beautiful thing you've ever heard just amazing. tuning just the touch Sing, and everything singing scales because he knows how how to uh, you know Handle the, the, the simplest instrument. right so so, so the, the concept is um, uh, effortless mastery right and that's, that's you know it's a Perlman or a Shakespeare so it certainly seems that way yeah yes it seems that way that's actually a very good point it seems that way there's a lot of work that goes into it trippingly off the tongue trippingly yes. off the pen yeah so what else would you say to conclude about the play, about Shakespeare, about the production? Well, first of all, uh, it's on an outdoor stage and it's in natural lighting. And uh, it's just a wide open, beautiful uh, uh, Como property. You can bring a blanket, bring a chair, bring a picnic. Uh, on a very unique Elizabethan oh, type it's, stage. It's a be- beautiful setting. It's it's just a wonderful experience for the audience to uh, be able to sit outside and watch and listen to Shakespeare. Like uh, they would say, uh, they wouldn't say, I'm going to go see a play in Elizabethan times. They would say, I'm going to go hear a play. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And um, uh, I've, I've we've got a great, we've got yeah. a great, a great cast. I don't know how David does it. He, he, he's got the schedule not easy because like the actors calculus we have it's like calculus we've got actors who work and they come in late and can they be here in the day and they have to go on vacation with their family and we we've got to get it together david's got this on his plate which is not easy and he's basically blocking the play and blocking for those who don't know blocking play is basically telling the actors where they stand when how they enter, how they exit. And on what line. And, and on what line. And, uh, you know. That, that's the kind of point I wanted to make. I, and I hope this isn't boring, but I find it incredibly exciting about Shakespeare and all his plays that I've directed. The direction and act, what the actors are doing are, is embedded in the language. Yep. It, and it's the most remarkable thing I experience as a director when I'm listening and watching, but more listening and I hear the language, it's like, ah, that's when you go down on your knees and you grab her hand on that line, on, when you say that. And um, that's just a kind of a broad example, but it, 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 it gets a lot more subtler than that. The language begins to open up to me in a way when I first read it, it doesn't. It's like after watching and listening and watching actors in particular, particular struggle you know, with the lines and make the lines work and try to act the lines, it takes it to another level. The that's language right. goes to another level. And uh, that's about all I can say without floating off into space here. But <laughs> no, no, it's, it's the a, most uh, remarkable thing that I've experienced Shakespeare. directing Shakespeare. You know, when you, when you say for, for the layperson, uh, you know, you, you, you work through a scene. 
uh, or a portion of a scene and you tell people where to go and it's slow and it's, you know, it's by the numbers and they have to write it down. It takes time. And then when they've got it down, you say, okay, everybody places, let's see it from the top. And they do it. And it's taken, you know, what, what's taken you three quarters, uh, an hour and a half to block is now, you know, two minutes stage time. But when you see it all come together as a dance choreographically with the, the music, which is the words, the, choreograph- yes, yes. the choreography, the words, the music here, how it all comes together and flows, it's even more magic. Brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, it, the, uh, and, I keep, and I tell the actors as I'm blocking, sometimes it seems arbitrary, uh, but uh, eventually they'll make it their own. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They'll, they'll come together with the language and the action, right. and it becomes their yeah. own. Yeah, it's great. It's great to watch them. I mean, they're just you know uh, they're actors, but they and they know Shakespeare in some cases. Some cases it's new to them, but to see them beginning to understand what's going on and what they're doing is also quite magical. I think you're saying Shakespeare was brilliant. <laughs> I think something, so. yeah. something like that. Something like that. Yeah, uh, that's funny. You bring up Harold Bloom. I think the only thing I've ever read of his was about Midsummer Night's Dream. That was a while ago. I have a book, his book. The Invention of the The, the Human. And uh, I keep telling myself, like, because I I, I do get a lot after, because he has that strong kind of point of view. And so good. And, uh, but I do remember, one of the things I remember him saying, like, this is the best play. This is like perfect play. And I kind of, I think I have to agree with him. Yeah. Because it's all locked together. Although, still, my favorite comedy is Much Ado About Nothing. I mean, that to me, that 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 has a, yeah. a heart. Uh, yeah. Just uh, something about it vibrates in my heart. Yeah. About that play, Benedict and Beatrice. Yeah, it's 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 it. You that's the word. Yeah. They 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 hate each other. They hate each other. Yeah. And they end up falling madly in love. Yeah. And it's just brilliant. Some some commentator talked about, and maybe it was uh, Professor Smith, the Wizard of Oz, all was all a dream, and that was based on Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, Tinkerbell and the other fairies in Peter Pan was based on the fairies. Uh, I, I don't know if you make that connection. Mm. Well, you well, know. no, the, I, I make that connection in that those two things you mentioned have a very strong psychic. Yeah. life in my in me because of growing up and seeing Tinkerbell mm-hmm. and Peter Pan and yeah. Wizard of Oz. Yeah. I mean, that just, it's yeah. just fantasy land. Yeah. And uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, even with the fairies and the all that stuff, there's uh, it doesn't go into the Wizard of Oz or it doesn't go into the Tinkerbell and the Peter Pan thing for me. It, it all seems more practicable something you know as uh you know what i mean the fairies are really you know they, they don't take on that otherworldly yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're right they're, they're right there although i i saw this wonderful uh video of paps production adapted by lapine Le, Le, Le Le james lapine yeah. james lapine uh he had a lot of music a lot of songs to the text but there's this one moment when they go from you know the the theseus Hippolyta and the the setting up the lovers and the the mechanics uh, where this little kid, he must've been like five years old 
was had this like kind of sprite costume on and the set was just like grass and trees i don't know how they did it there were trees and grass and and the little kid just and the fog comes up and he this little kid running around running around it's a changeling child yeah running around and running around and the audience went nuts yeah this is yeah and they got the magic and yeah, I think that's yeah, what he yeah, wanted with so the he went for that magic yeah, and had yeah. I I mean I just got a little taste of that watching the video had I been in the audience that yeah. would have been and and why is it that he the little Indian boy referred to as changeling I haven't looked that up a changeling boy is a is a mortal boy uh, raised by by fairies He's, right. he's, and Does, whose mother yeah. was a mortal and, and whose father was a god or an immortal. A uh, mixed marriage. And Right, it's, yeah. But, but the child, the changeling boy oh, is so basically mortal in that he can die. That's so And in this case, his mother was, uh, she's, yeah, she's right, raising him because right. his, his mother. Right, yeah, it's, it's not a, um, uh, oddly enough, I keep coming back to this Pat production, I mean, Lapine really, because uh, fairies never, at some point, never leave the stage. So at one point, uh, William Hurt was playing Oberon. He, where he's supposed to get the changeling child. Remember, he talks about getting the changeling child. Yeah. And usually in Shakespeare, when he, an actor describes something that happens off stage, like this, Oberon comes out and saying, I'd, uh, uh, Titania was confused. She was playing around with the ass. I was able to get the changeling child from her. So Shakespeare doesn't show you that right. as an audience. You have to pick up on that. Uh, but basically, uh, it's really not that important. It's almost yeah. like a MacGuffin. Yeah, it's, well, it starts the, the battle yeah. between Oberon and Teutonia, yeah, the right. changeling child. Right, right, right. And, um, yeah. But in the, the Pat production, Oberon, you see Oberon get the changeling child from Titania. But, of course, William Hurt yeah. makes this entrance his entrance is up through the earth. Oh, they had really? an elevator, and he comes up whoosh, through the earth. He's dressed like he has like a fawn, like he has the legs, like a <laughs> yeah, yeah, And he yeah. comes up, and William Hurt, I never really, I was impressed with his physical acting, but he comes up, he just rides that, he gets a standing out of applause, of course, and he rides the elevator, and he lifts his leg at the last minute and goes, and there was like a, a drum that went boom. Yeah. And, and Titania and the fairies go, woo. Leave and it to, go, leave it to boom. Pat. And they go, woo. So they got the magic. We, yeah. don't, we don't quite do that. Yeah. We don't quite get we, there. But I guess you could, you could do Midsummer that way. And uh, You can do it. As we say, it's unbreakable. Do it anyway. Yeah. If you've seen the 1935 edition, the Warner Brothers no. edition. Please yeah. see it. Mickey Rooney is Puck, right? I, I, I and, know about and James it. Cagney is Bottom. Oh, is that right? That I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> Robert Taylor is 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 Lysander. They're they're nothing, but the the uh, you know James Cagney. I can play the lion. I can roar. I can you know. Right. It's a perfect bottom. I have a dream. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I I got to tell you, it's the first play. Of Shakespeare that I, I, I was aware of, the first one I read, and I'll tell you how. When I was a kid in the 50s, there was a series of comic books called Classics Illustrated. Yeah, oh, I remember those. And you could read uh, Alexander Dumas and, uh, yep, you know, yep. Victor Hugo. Shakespeare and, plays. And, and yep, the Scottish one, play, was, one was Midsummer Night's Dream. Is that right? Uh-huh. 
So I found it. You can go online and they have it in PDF form. Wow. The, the, the classic comic that I read in probably 1952, it's excellently done. Really? Yes. With the drawings are nice. The, the fairies, you know, Puck and Oberon and the changeling child. And it's it's even more truncated than you can imagine, but it's the entire play there. And so you're you so, 11 so years old. Look it, look it up. Uh, Classics Illustrated, Midsummer Night's Dream. You get the entire play. There's even, you know, you, this beautiful moonlit scene with, with Oberon says, uh, remember since once I sat upon a promontory. That's right. where I first learned what a promontory was. But of course, you know, the, it's moonless. It's moonless, yes, that's the thing. Yeah, and but, it, flying but, between the but cold... But you have to have a moon. You have to have a moon. You have to have a moon. And, and I, I saw, it's left out of the play, but, uh, uh, but I might see young Cupid's fiery shaft quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moon. Right. That's, <laughs> we, when we did it the last time, uh, uh, 2010, uh, Mickey played Oberon, and uh, he, we, he wanted those lines, so we put them back in for him. Of course, that's when we started at five. So, yeah. yeah. yeah and one, once again, the, the rhyming couplet yeah. is just brilliant. And it, it's effortless. It, it's, it's not cloying. It's just, it, it's like this is how you get the feeling this is how they talk. Yeah. This is not superimposed like at the bottom when he's right. there rocks and shades of shocks right. like, you know which is interesting that Shakespeare puts a rhyming couplet in yes. the play within the play to guy gets to kind of go against you know like <laughs> yeah. like a, a singer singing <laughs> off exactly. key you know? it's fascinating yeah, we, we could t- we could talk uh, you know oh, about yeah, Shakespeare yeah. and I personally believe that it was one man that it was Shakespeare yeah. or it had to be an actor it had to be someone had to be, uh, that grew up from the roots up and in the theater. There's a, there's, well, what you said about uh, uh, stage direction in the play itself, I was suggesting. Yeah, in, the, in the words. In the well, words. and then the other thing is uh, Shakespeare had minimal sets, if any, because he, oh, look at the moon. Yeah. Or, or what a dark night. Or how he describes, he describes. Or stand, unfold, whoever, you know, it's foggy night in Denmark. Who's there? And, you know, in, in and I might have gotten this from Bloom, uh, uh, but uh, the, He's uh, Oberon is describing to Puck where uh, Titania sleeps at night, and he describes this this kind of almost Eden, and uh, you know that Shakespeare, when he was a boy, probably had a little spot down by the river uh, Avon. Yeah. You know. The- well, and and beyond that, the thing that amazes me, I and I I first realized this I think when we did uh, as you like it, and. Um, uh, we have to cut for time, unfortunately. Uh, there's two cut. I had a director say, you cut Shakespeare first for sense yeah. and then for time, you know, because yeah. a lot of things, like, the audience is not going to get yeah. this. They, right. they, they, sure. It's not helping the actors. Right. Um, and uh, there was a song in uh, uh, As You Like It, uh, which is uh, in the springtime when the, when the birds do ring-a-ding-ding, something... Uh, it's a it's a ditty. It's a yeah. silly little ditty this, song. Right. And uh, I said, ah, oh, you know, let's cut that. Let's leave that out. Guess what? That song's there, so the actors can change into the wedding dresses. <laughs> That's right. right. That's I mean, now who? Yeah. Right. This that, is it, not a closet play. Right. This yeah, is yeah. This is like someone who knows producing it, 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 yeah. actors. Yeah. Know. Yeah. 
well, he sets up he sets up the uh, the mechanicals in the woods to to uh, to uh, rehearse. And he basically says, you know, this is where we're going to, this is the dressing room right. over yeah, here, yeah, yeah. and this is the this and this, and we're going to get it all together. Yeah, he knows. Well, well in, in Hamlet, you know, when, when, he's, when Hamlet's instructing the actors, he's basically giving acting lessons. Yeah. Don't saw the air Speak like this. this speech, you know. I pray thee, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on, on the tongue. Or if you mouthed it, as many of as our many actors of, right, do. Right, right. I'd as leaf the town crier spoke my lion. That's right. And the, your job is as to hold the mirror up to nature, as yeah. twere. Or I mean, as a, that, that's a, in Shakespeare's time, <laughs> they didn't have acting lessons. They didn't have acting school. And uh, I, I point this out when I'm directing also to actors, because uh, if they have like a long, complicated speech, it's, what they did have was they taught rhetoric. They taught how to make an argument. And, and basically... You look at all his speeches, the character, particularly talking to another character, to the audience, he's making an argument. argument, mm -hmm. And it's a logical structure to be or not to be. That's right. the, the Hamlet's speech to the, to the actors, you know, sawing the air or out, yes, right. out tamarind, what is it, out tamarind. Oh, there's a character, a really bombastic character, or yeah. Herod, out Herod, Herod. Right, out Herod, Herod. Because uh, during the, the morality plays, right. Herod was a... Kind of right. like, let mm -hmm. me play the lion too. You know that right. he was the evil guy and the. Rah. Yeah. So so. <laughs> well, Hamlet. Okay, uh, Hamlet um, usually played by this handsome mm -hmm. kind of you know Jude Law kind yeah. of guy, and uh, there there is a couple. Of, well, particularly at the in the last scene when when I believe uh, they're they're fighting and and the queen comes over to him and says he's going to not. You're sweating like a pig deer or something like that. And uh, so there's an impression that Hamlet was kind of a little on the pudgy side. Yeah. And I think the actor that originated him he had some girth to him and was not really had a beard, was not like yeah, we, that clean cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it kind of, uh, it kind of, if you cast an actor that way, if you cast a real handsome Jude Law, it's like, it, it, there's something wrong here. It, yeah. This guy could like, right. you know, take care of it in a second. Like it's over now. You know, he did what to my, you know, where and bang, you go in. So, but you get some guy that's maybe a little out of shape, uh, you know, that, that maybe, you know, uh, he's going to struggle. Or he's going to struggle. He's got a problem. Like, yeah. like I said, remember ja Derek Jacoby, they, they did all the plays for PBS actually oh, BBC right, and then it was right, presented by yes, PBS yes. 20 years ago 25 years yeah, ago so, uh, yeah. all the plays Jacoby yeah. played played Hamlet you know Derek Jacoby is not a you know he's a fabulous actor but certainly not a, a, a matinee idol type yeah, right, not yeah, a right. handsome ham, handsome guy do you know the book uh, Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell I've heard of it so now that's uh, Shakespeare's son's name was Hamnet right so he died at the age of 11 yeah and so this is a, a fiction uh, where the only facts really are that there was a Shakespeare. He had a son who died at the age of 11 and his wife. And the rest of it is made up. Beautiful story, heart-wrenching. It talks about Shakespeare as an actor, of course. And, and, in, and in acting in Hamlet, he, were, he wanted to die for his son. It's a beautiful story. Wow. Beautiful story. Oh, I'll have to look at it. I've well, heard they, of it. I, yeah. I haven't seen it. I'm notorious of talking about things I know very little about. 
or my memory is not as sharp as it should be. But I believe the actual story that Shakespeare based Hamlet on, the character feigns madness and literally feigns madness, you know, just babbling madness. And he, he spends his time fastening these kind of hooks, you know, out of, you know, within, as part of his, his uh, madness act, as it were. An OCD kind of thing. And the hooks turn out to be where he hangs up all his enemies at the end. Uh, yeah. But check me out on that. There, there's more to <laughs> yeah, that yeah. that's interesting. Uh, the original, the original uh, that uh, Shakespeare based his Hamlet on. Well, Maggie O'Farrell certainly depicts Shakespeare as almost ma- having gone mad over the loss of his son. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. interesting. And that that would have been any idea a time frame in the chronology of plays. I don't. I don't. I'll get the it, book. It, it's so. Yeah. It, it's uh, yeah. there is so many books on Shakespeare. I mean, it's like he's the most oh, yeah. written about. Yeah. And uh, they're just and they're wonderful books. There's uh, yeah. Shapiro. Do you have come across the Shapiro know. books? But I, I don't know. But in Hamnet, the name Shakespeare is never used. You just know who it is. Mm-hmm. And this, this is a novel? No. And it's by... by uh, Maggie O'Farrell. Maggie O'Farrell. Right. Okay. All right. I, I well, think we've, you know, we've... Uh, we've, <laughs> we've unloaded our... We've our <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure if we talk again, there'll be right. lots more. So next year, what are you doing next year? What's the play next year? Too soon to tell. I have no idea. These guys... Too soon to tell. Well, we, we wanted to... We talk about doing the Scottish play, Mackers, and... Um, uh, there's a director that we know, Chris Martin, has voiced an interest in doing that. And uh, I don't know. I, I, we like to do comedies. We like to do comedies. Yeah. We haven't done any of the histories, the number Scottish one. play is, is... The histories take a ton of actors yeah. to pull off. Yeah. And they kind of, you know, unless you grew well, up When's the last England, time you did Much Ado? Well, that would be 20, 2014. So, so in a couple of years. Sounds yeah, like it's ready. We could, a couple of years. You'd pull that uh, out again? Uh, what about... Um, well, Twelfth Night is a Twelfth Night? Thing. Well, that was 20... What was that? 2013? Yeah. Well, maybe Twelfth Night. So, you know, I mean... Yeah, I, the con- uh, you know, the, there's 13 comedies. I can, yeah. I think, uh, something I like so. that. I think so. Uh, Pericles is considered a romance. We did that. Here's what you should do. As Mel Brooks as the 2,000-year-old man was being interviewed by Carl Reiner. Uh, Carl Reiner says, did you know any of the great literary people of the past? Did you know Shakespeare? Shakespeare! I invested in his 38th play. <laughs> Just 38 plays? It was 37. Not 38. It was a failure. Lost all my money. <laughs> really, this is amazing that, you, that you're saying this. No one's known about this. What was the name of the play? Queen Alexandra and Murray. <laughs> He says, oh, this is just amazing. Can you, can you tell us a little? He says, well, it opens up, and Alexandra is, is, is leaning out of the castle window, and she goes, what ho, Murray? And Murray says, what are you hollering? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both so much. We, we could go on for days, but you probably have to do a rehearsal or something. And, you know, just the, talking, for talking with me today, thank you, and for putting on the play, uh, which reminded me to read it uh, and to remind me that uh, Shakespeare himself, as I said, brilliant, 
uh, and I really look forward to seeing it. Can we, can, can we just give a plug for anybody Absolutely. who happens to Please be in the do. Woodstock area? Yeah. Yeah. It's every weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, from the last weekend in July. I don't know the exact date. July 29th. July 29th. All through weekends, Labor Day weekend, August to Labor Day 4th. weekend. Excellent. Uh, we don't charge yeah, any admission charging, fee. Yeah. We suggest a $10 donation. Yeah. That's great. Bring bring uh, the Hershey public. bars, bring a jug of lemonade. <laughs> Enjoy. That's yeah. great. And a, and a folding chair. And a folding chair. <laughs> Thank you both very much. This is great. Thank you, Howard. Okay. More information about our guests today can be found on our website which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie continues to provide overall creative direction, and Ben and Eden continue to provide additional inspiration and support. Carol, of course, is my muse. Three-year-old Jake continues to encourage the podcast, as does Jake's baby cousin Francesca, now one, and another great source of inspiration for us all. Also a source of inspiration and encouragement, Catherine Lane Mercer has recently formally joined the Wolfpack. Welcome, Catherine. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to many of our guests, although not today. I was introduced to Hank by our friend Maxine Davidowitz. Thank you, Max. Thanks also to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. And thanks as well to AJ Falari, who is working on the editing with me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.